0: I think if I were to ask you, what do you think the oddest book of the Bible is? I would say I would put uh, safe money on saying most of you would say the book of Revelation. And I think many of you would say that because although it starts off with things that you sort of think, okay, well, that, that makes a little sense. There's a few letters to different churches and Jesus is speaking to them about things they need to do or stop doing. Then suddenly it starts to take a weird turn around chapter four and the weirdness just doesn't stop. We hear about uh, not only the Lamb of God, who we've often heard about, we hear about the Lion of Judah, who is also the Lamb, who is also the Lamb who is slain. We hear about uh, living creatures, we hear about elders, we hear about uh, the 144,000 gathered. We hear about a beast and a ten-horned dragon and a whore of Babylon, and we hear about rivers of blood and locusts. And My gosh, it's a strange, strange book in so many ways. One thing Revelation really does for us, as difficult as it is to read, is that it is something that invites us to unlock our imagination. It's one of those books where it's very clear by its strangeness. What it's asking us to do is not simply to say, literally, always, uh, what is it that it's saying and we must do. Sometimes the meaning is obscure. In fact, what it invites us to do, however, is it invites us to open up our mind's eye to say, what do these images look like? And what do these things tell us about the life we're to live today? I think our book of Revelation's passage today, uh, from chapter 21, is one of those passages that is incredibly important for us. It has strange imagery, it has the idea of of a city dressed up like a bride, and I don't know what that would look like. But you know what it invites us to do is to imagine what it would look like, and what the implications are of seeing it come down from heaven, beloved by God. But it's something that's not just inviting us to look at what the future will be, it's inviting us to change our actions and our attitudes about how we live today. And so I'd like to tackle Revelation 21 today because I think it's a deeply, deeply important passage for us who, although we often find Revelation a strange book, is in fact something that encourages us in the darkest of times and also gives us a challenge for how we live our daily lives. Now let's take a look at this passage a little bit more closely. It's Revelation 21 and it's uh, verses 1 through 6. I'd like to read the first few verses of it to remind us of what it is we just heard. So this is John. We don't know who uh, it's really talking about. Was it Jesus' disciple John? Uh, sometimes this person's known as, a, uh, instead of John the Apostle, it's known as St. John the Divine. And many of you will know the history of our church. We're good shepherd, but we used to be called St. John the Divine. That's who that church was named after. Because church traditions uh, change as to who actually wrote this and who saw this vision. But the idea is, is that this is a person who's uh, exiled in an island called Patmos, and God gives him a vision about what's going on in the heavenly realm. And this is what he sees towards the end of the book. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down and of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. Where the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Now here's what's really interesting to me about this passage. One of the things that Christians have often thought about when they think about where the end comes, and especially when they think about when we die, we often say, well, what's going to happen is we're going to heaven. What's so interesting about this is that in fact it doesn't talk about earth coming up to heaven and the people who live there. It's saying the opposite. What it's saying is is that it's a vision at the end times when Christ returns and makes all things new. They don't see the earth destroyed and everybody sucked into the heavenly realm. Instead, you see the opposite, that heaven comes down and renews the earth and makes all things new. Now, that may seem like that's a boring kind of observation. I mean, what difference does it make? But here's what I'd like to suggest is so important. What this tells us is, is that God loves the world as it is, even though intends to make it greater than what it is right now. Now think about this passage a little bit about what it's trying to say. The first thing we notice here is that it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And you look at that and you start thinking to yourself, well, of course, what's God going to do? He's going to wipe out the earth. After all, the earth has failed in so many ways of what it was supposed to be. We go a little bit further about the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Jerusalem. Is a city that again and again is criticized by Jesus and by the prophet. A few weeks ago in Lent, what did we hear Jesus say as he's marching towards Jerusalem? On the outskirts of Jerusalem, he stops and he weeps and he says, "Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those sent to you. How I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks uh, under her wings, but you would not have it." How often Jesus speaks to Jerusalem and says, "Jerusalem, you've utterly failed in the project that you've been given." And God sends the prophets. Oftentimes, Jeremiah speaks against Jerusalem. And Jesus comes and he speaks against the temple, which lies at the heart of Jerusalem. Again and again, Jesus prophesied a punishment coming to Jerusalem because Jerusalem failed in the calling God gave it. And what is it you do when you have something that fails and completely and utterly doesn't do what it's supposed to do? You replace it. Think about you going to Home Depot and buying a dishwasher and you buy it because you see that it's advertised as a fantastic dishwasher. It washes dishes like you wouldn't believe and they show you pictures of how all the spots are removed and all those dishes and how you've got a, a five-year warranty because we're so confident this dishwasher is fantastic. And you bring it home and you plug it in and you do the first wash and spots everywhere. And you think, okay, maybe I I didn't get it quite right and I rinse the dishes a little bit and I try it again and boom, spots everywhere. And then you try it again and it breaks. And then you get the repairman to come in and he fixes it and then you try it again and it still doesn't work. What is it you're going to do eventually? You know what you do is you go back to Home Depot and say, this dishwasher sucks. (laughs) I don't want this dishwasher. I don't want this model. I want a new model. And what do you do? You go get a completely different model because the dishwasher failed. That's what you do, don't you? The problem is, is that we sometimes think of that in that way, somehow deep inside, when we think about the way we think of the world, I think it may be logical that God would say, forget it. I mean, you look at the world and it is so hard when you read the newspaper, when you look at the mess around the world and you just shake your head and you think, ah, can't wait to be freed. Think of all those old-timey gospel hymns from the 1920s and in the time of the Depression in the 30s about how they'll fly away to another place, how understandable it is that people would want such thing to be free of the coils of this world that is so troublesome and difficult, but the Scriptures don't tell us that. The Scriptures instead tell us not that God abandons the world, not that He destroys the world, but He makes the world new. This city, Jerusalem, that stones the prophets and kills those sent to it God doesn't destroy. He doesn't say, now I saw from the new earth a new a, a new Ottawa descending to replace Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem, but Jerusalem adorned like a bride for her husband. Jerusalem as she was meant to be. Jerusalem the best she could be. Jerusalem that never was by human power, but by God's powers transformed into the glittering and beautiful and peaceful city that it was meant to be. What is it God says beyond this? He says, look, God has made His home among mortals. Not that God abandoned mortals, that He abandoned creation, but God comes to dwell. At the heart of Christian faith is the belief that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that so whosoever might believe in Him might have eternal life. That God so loved the world as it is, that He saw this world trapped under the law of sin and death and said, I want to save this world because it is so beautiful and wonderful to me. It is the work of my hands and I will not suffer it to be destroyed. The heart of Christian faith is a tale not of destruction, but a tale of redemption for a slave that was crushed by the power of sin. And God comes to renew the earth. Even the sorrows of of, of tears we hear. Not that tears will all be forgotten. Instead, what are we told? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mining and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. But he doesn't say you'll forget it all. Look at the paradigm that Jesus himself gives to us. Jesus crucified, died, buried. And when he rises, what do they see when they see Jesus? Jesus comes and he appears in front of the disciples and he says to Thomas, see, put your finger where the nails have been. Jesus does not remove all the scars from his body. Instead, he transforms them. It is still the same Jesus, but wonderfully and gloriously transfigured with the scars, but scars that no longer cause pain. God does not want to replace us with someone who has never experienced pain and sorrow, but instead simply says, I will redeem the pain and sorrow you felt, wipe away the tears from your eyes, and it will be you and truly you who is redeemed and raised. Now that sounds great theologically, but I think one of the most important things we should take home from that, and that realization that God came to redeem and not to destroy and replace, is that we are called to have the same love for this troubled world that God does. You know, it is really, really hard to have it. Now, it's true that I think most of us are probably not going around thinking, how can I dump toxins into the environment and destroy this earth? How can I crush my enemies? But how many of us mentally and physically check out of the world and the needs of the world because we are despairing? I mean, honestly, I find it really hard to watch the news, and I don't watch it very often. It probably isn't a good idea to have yourself always flooded by bad news. But one of the negative things about that is I pay almost no attention at all to politics. I get so frustrated, particularly looking at American politics, at how few people seem to argue out of good faith. You can have a legitimate criticism, but instead of sticking to that, what do you do? Every time your opponent makes a slip of the tongue, you make a big deal out of it instead of actually asking, what were they trying to say? You look at their plan, and instead of saying, is it a good plan, you say, oh, is it my party's plan or their party's plan, so it must be a bad thing. I mean, one of the great problems that social media has brought to us is that people are unbelievably nasty in ways that they probably wouldn't be face-to-face. How easy is it to write out some nasty and ignorant and arrogant thing out into the ether to your supporters that you would find it really difficult saying to a person when you see them face-to-face? You look at that and you wash your hands and say, forget politics. And of course, I look too as we head into an election year here in Canada and I look at the ways that government operates I ask myself, should I even care? I don't know who to vote for, to be honest with you. We look at those sorts of things and we say to ourselves, why bother? And of course, we also look at the many ways in which our planet suffers environmentally. You read always about climate change. And we think about ways that can be improved and we argue about carbon tax or not. But I also know that uh, what seems to be inevitable is that there will be serious changes to our environment over the next years not just because of Canada, but because of developing nations like China and India and others, and then you think, forget it, there's nothing I can do about it. How easy is it for us to wash our hands of this world because the problems seem so big, because we find ourselves frustrated or even disgusted by the world we see, and we may not then go and actively make the world worse, but we stop feeling ourselves bound to making the world a better place. Here's the great news about this. Not only does God say we should love this world, he also says that in the end it is I who make all things new, not you guys. You know what I do? I invite you in this task, but in the end the heavy lifting comes with God. Why do we work for the environment? Why do we invest in politics knowing that in many ways the things we want and the things that are supposed to be right will not come about? We do that because we're not relying on our own power. We do it because we love the world that God made. And loving the world that God made, yes, means we will suffer. That's why we have at the center of our faith a cross. Christ suffered for the world. And although we aren't crucified literally, and most of us thankfully, because we don't live in places like Sri Lanka, won't be caused to die for our faith, there is a way in which we, by daring to love a troubled world, know we will suffer, know we will hurt, because we will have our hearts broken again and again. But Jesus says, do not fear, for I will be with you. I am making all things new. I will bring about, yes, a new Jerusalem, but what's so wonderful is that He will also bring about a new Barheaven descending from the heaven. How wonderful it is that we can look forward to the way that we who love this place and are invited to love this place do not have to despair when it doesn't change in the ways we want it to because Jesus is making all things new, including the place that we sit in today. Here's the next thing that I wanted to say about this. First of all, it's a transformation that we're seeing here a new heaven and a new earth, not a replacement of the old, but a transformation of the old. But also what's so interesting about this, and also it's echoed in the gospel reading today, is how personal and relational it is. I mentioned to you that weird image of the city adorned like a bride for her husband. And I don't know how that works exactly. But it is interesting, however, when you think about a bride adorned for her husband, what are you talking about? You're talking about one of the most intimate, and close relationships that can exist between a husband and a wife. Jesus does not sort of pick this out in Revelation and use it once. Again and again, he talks himself about himself as the bridegroom and his church the bride. He gives stories about the wedding banquet and about the, the, the bride who's waiting for the, for the groom to come. He again and again talks about this kind of marital imagery because it is a symbol of a deep intimacy and relationship that is highly personal. I think it's really significant that he talks about this bride coming from the, from the heavens because it says that the God's relationship to the creation, to the earth, and to you and I is not the relationship of uh, one bureaucrat to a, to a citizen. Instead, it's the relationship of a husband to a wife. Deeply personal, deeply relational, and deeply invested in a personal and costly way. You think, too, about the ways that Jesus speaks to people, what always disarms them. He speaks to them and he looks at them in the eye and asks, "Do you want to be well? Not get away. Not here. I'm sprinkling my magic dust. But do you want to be well?" Jesus knows people in a deep personal way and is invested in them in a deep personal way. It's interesting when Jesus is uh, uh, Judas leaves. We're told in uh, in John's Gospel today that we just read in chapter 13. Judas leaves and then Jesus says, now the son of mine is glorified. And he's saying that he's going to be glorified by the way he dies and, and pours out his life for the world. What's his advice to the disciples? What does he tell them that they're supposed to do after, now that he's noticed, or now that Jesus is accomplishing his task? You might think he says, now go and join an important organization to change the world. Or he might want to say, you know, go and, and join this uh, a movement that will overthrow the Romans or, or whatever it is that he might say seems like a grand project that he would invite them into because Jesus is doing something to save the cosmos, the whole world. Instead, he tells them something that's amazingly small and relational. He says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. And by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How do you want to change? The, how can you change the world? Jesus says, start by loving the people in this room. How amazing it is that Jesus says, if you want this world to change, you want people to come to know who I am, the savior of the world and start loving the particular people in your little circle. I find that so encouraging because I look at the world and I look particularly at the lives of the saints and I'm overwhelmed sometimes by the ways that people amazingly do amazing things. You look at great people like Martin Luther King who who spearheaded the the entire uh you know change to the Jim Crow laws and, and, and made such a great stride for, for, for racial equality. Or you look at people like, you know, Mother Teresa who does so much for the poor, or you look at so many people who seem like world changers and you think, ah. You know, I don't know if I want to really invest in this because I can't do it. I'm not a world changer. Yet again and again, the scriptures keep pointing us to the importance of personal relationship and how that can in fact be a place of transformation. God's love for his bride, Jesus' love for his disciples, and the disciples' love for each other. Here's a challenge for us. If we really believe in the transformation of this world, that we also believe in the transformation of the little people and the little things in our lives. And that means knowing them in a personal way and being committed to them in a personal way. How easy is it for us to have a thousand friends on Facebook but to not actually know the names and the lives of the neighbors that we physically live next to? One of the greatest disappointments of modern life is the way that we can know so much about each other but really don't know each other. We want to make a difference in Barhaven? Start by actually showing true friendship to the people you live so close to. Take the time as we're entering barbecue season to invite the person who lives next to you over for hot dogs. To talk to them about their children. To ask about what their kids like. To invite them over for a drink uh, at the end of the day. To ask them if you can help bring in the groceries. To wonder a little bit about their lives and say, I'm invested in you. Or think even within your own household. How often have I spoken about my, my regrets as a father? Is, I don't think I'm a bad father. I'm in many ways a very good one. But you know my greatest regrets? are the times where I don't give the personal attention to my wife and to my children. How often I'm busy, I've got these things to do, when one of my daughters says, I want to tell you about this game I'm playing on the internet, or I want to tell you about this grade three book I've been reading, and I think, ah, that is not all that exciting. What's exciting? It's you. There's something redemptive about the love you have for your little child to spend time with them, and that is also something the church can do. How it is transformative in the life of a young person to know that the adults in a church actually care about them as children and consider them valuable parts of the community, valuable enough to know their names and to be interested in the things that they do. That's why we invite children to bring uh, the things that they do in Sunday Club, not to say, isn't that cute, but to say, what you're doing is valuable. A little bit later, during the announcement time, I'll I'll talk a little bit about Thy Kingdom Come. We do every year. The children right now are making little beads for us to go out into the world to pray for five friends or neighbors we can do between Ascension and Pentecost. They are making a valuable contribution that says these little things will help you pray for the world. And these little ones help transform the world simply by lovingly making these little things. Do we let them know that they have an important part in God's kingdom? We do. The same thing with our neighborhoods. There's an old story that Martin Luther once was asked, if you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow, what would you do? Martin Luther said, I'd go plant a tree. Why? Because I love the creation that God loves. We should love the neighborhoods we live in. If you think Jesus is coming tomorrow, then plant a vegetable garden today. Put out flowers. Notice the good things in the gardens of the neighbors around you. Walk around and know the place where you live and love the neighborhood where you live. These are things that don't seem like they're so big unless you know that there is a Lord who can do great things through the small things we do. So what does this passage tell us? It says, love the world as it is, even though we long for it to be better than what we see right now. Love the world as it is, even though your heart will be broken because we know that God can do what we cannot. And the work we do to improve the world can never be completed by us, but we have confidence it will be completed by our Lord. And Lastly, if you really want to love this world, start by loving the concrete people and the concrete things you see in front of you because our God is a personal God, and we imitate our God and change the world by loving in a deep, personal, and relational way to the folks around us. Jesus tells us, and he makes us this promise, that if we truly love one another... But that is the greatest way we can help other people to love the God who made them. Let's start by really loving each other so that the world might see and know that Jesus is who he says he is, the Lord of heaven and earth and a loving Lord who loves each one of us in a deep personal way.